Welcome to Beyond Speaking with Brian Lord, a podcast featuring deeper conversations with the world's top speakers. Welcome to the Beyond Speaking podcast. I'm Brian Lord, and with us today is Amelia Rose Earhart. So back in 1937, Amelia Mary Earhart attempted to fly around the globe. Unfortunately, she disappeared somewhere over the South Pacific, never to be seen again. In 2014, Amelia Rose Earhart completed her own 28,000-mile flight around the globe in a single-engine aircraft. Her family shared the same last name as the first Amelia, spurring her to fall in love with aviation. The modern-day Amelia Earhart believes that the most important lesson she learned during her journey is that in order to truly succeed and also grow along the way, you have to learn to love turbulence, which obviously very fitting right now. Amelia is a commercial pilot, NBC journalist based in Denver, and speaks internationally about what it means to reach our full potential through bold adventure and a solid flight plan. So Amelia, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, blue skies, Brian. Thanks for having me. (laughs) So what was your very first flight like? So how, uh, I guess, uh, when did you start flying and what was your very first flight like? Well, as you can imagine, having the name Amelia Earhart, it was, I was asked, probably thousands of times as a child, you know, will you be a pilot someday? And so finally in my twenties, when I could afford the first lesson, you know, save up my, my tips from working odd jobs here and there, I saved up enough to take my first lesson so that I could really just have an answer. So that when people would look at me and say, Hey, are you ever going to become a pilot or look into it? I would finally know if I could say, yeah, this is something I want to do. Or maybe I could just use the excuse of, Oh, I get airsick. So, you know, I, I don't know anything about flying. Um, But that very first lesson is really where I realized that there's something very special happens when those wheels separate from the runway and you depart from the earth, right? Everything on the ground starts looking a whole lot smaller because suddenly you've got this big responsibility that you're in charge of, which was flying this airplane. So while the conditions weren't, um, you know, perfect or uh, necessarily inviting. In fact, I was with this crotchety old flight instructor who was none too impressed by the Amelia Earhart name. Um, I, I luckily found my way through and eventually fell in love with aviation, but it certainly wasn't handed to me on a silver platter. It was something I had to find my way into. So how do you go from uh, like your very first flight to a 28,000 mile, like 15, 20 country trip? Like that's a, that seems like a huge leap. It took you 20 some years to get to the first part. You know, where, what, what did the journey look like to the second? It took me another 10 years to get to that part. So when people want to really fast forward to their goal, you know, I, I can only say this in hindsight now, but some things do take 10 years and, and for really big, complex and sophisticated goals, it could take you that long because from that very first lesson, you know nothing, right? You basically know that the airplane is up in the sky and you've got to figure out how to land it. But to get to the point where I was recreating Amelia Earhart's flight and trying to do it in a modern day context in 2014, gosh, there were thousands of hours of studying, hundreds of hours of flight lessons, tens of thousands of dollars put into the flight training experience itself. And really a lot of turbulence along the way that could have kept me from pursuing my goal, right? Because a goal that big, there are far more reasons why it shouldn't happen than why it should. And so I had to keep focusing on the reasons why I could make it happen and find those those inlets and ways I could find my own path. And I know that's the short version, but it took a relentless dedication to every single morning waking up and saying, gosh, I may have two or three setbacks that I didn't, you know, didn't even expect yesterday, but I've got to figure them out and got to keep flying because 
while the pressure of the name Amelia Earhart was one thing, I eventually grew into a deep love for this. And now I'm so glad that I did looking back because making that flat around the world come to life is something that I'm now the most proud of. Well, I think is really fascinating. I know you've talked about this too, is your parents' different viewpoints around your name. And I, I think it's so interesting. You can give one set of options and just say, hey, here's all the things that could be bad about this. And then here's all the crazy good things that could come out of it. Um, how, how did that affect you? I mean, if you want to share that story about your parents, but just taking this, oh, you know, obviously flying around the world was dangerous, but uh, you know, what are some of the things you, you took out from the different viewpoints of your parents? I love that you asked this because I think they both had such valid viewpoints when they were deciding with my dad's last name being Earhart spelled the same as the first Amelia. And back in 1983, when I was born, they just assumed that we had a relation to Amelia because it was before online genealogy reports. And my family certainly didn't have the money to be doing a lot of genealogical reports. We just had that last name. And so my mom says, Glenn, we name her Amelia Earhart. You know, she's always going to have a great role model. She's always going to have somebody to look up to. And if she goes into a party, no one ever will ever, ever forget her name, right? All great points. My dad says, what if she feels like she's got to talk about Amelia Earhart her whole life? And what if she feels like in order to live up to this name, she's got to learn to fly or even fly around the world someday. And it's a really good example of how they were both completely right, right? And they were both right in their own ways for different reasons. And I've found value in all of their reasons, both for the push pushback and for going for the name, because I look back and if they would have chosen a different name, my life would have been on an entirely different trajectory. But I think my mom was, was ultimately right. And that it did inspire me because now I feel like if Amelia could do it back in 1937 and could attempt so many things. And even before she disappeared on her flight around the world, I mean, she was breaking records all over the place. Plus she was a social worker. She was a clothing designer. She was designing luggage. She was a very well-rounded person. And so now in 2022, I'm like, with all the technology around me, how can I not pursue it if Amelia could do it way back then? What was your first sort of long flight or, or something where you felt like you were really pushing yourself outside of your comfort zone? Oh, well, that's a good question too. Um, you know, after I had pursued my private and my instrument rating, I decided to do sort of a test flight across the U.S. to recreate one of Amelia's previous flights, previous to her flight around the world. And it went from San Francisco all down the coast of Southern California, all across the bottom of the U.S., um, through Texas, Louisiana, and eventually ended in Miami. And I recreated that flight as a test and a way for myself to build hours. And I did it with another flight instructor of mine who basically we use that as kind of a mini flight around the world test. And that gave me the opportunity to feel like I was out there in that uncharted territory, even though it was a fairly controlled environment. But I have to say, if I wouldn't have done that, I don't know if I would have attempted the flight around the world. What was it? What was your first sort of trans-oceanic? I don't know if it's trans-Pacific, trans-Atlantic. What was your first, uh, or even trans-Caribbean? I don't know. Uh, what was What was that first flight like? That was during the flight around the world, believe it or really? not. Yeah, the first time when I departed from Miami, Florida, and I was making my way to Trinidad and Tobago, I'll never forget in the Pilatus PC-12, and there's these massive storms popping up on my arrival into Trinidad, and thinking to myself, this is no longer home base where I can just pop in and find a friendly face, right? Even though everyone was absolutely welcoming to me, I felt like I was suddenly so much more responsible for everything that I had brought to the table, right? I've got this borrowed aircraft 
a four and a half million dollar Swiss built airplane with a fuel tank on board. I had hired a co-pilot to come along with me because insurance wise, I was not going to be allowed to take this trip around the world. I didn't have enough hours and wouldn't have them until I was probably in my sixties or so, by the way, the insurance requirements were going. And so I felt this big responsibility, plus knowing that the world was watching and in some ways they were watching, hoping that I would do really well, but in some ways, you know, unfortunately the way the world is now, some people hoping I was, I would fail. And so heightened responsibility really kept me at my best. But I remember thinking to myself, I can't turn back now, right? Once I left the United States, it's on and you've got to keep flying eastbound until you make your way all the way back. And so did you go, um, what was your route? So you went uh, from there to South America and then across, uh, where, where did you land in Asia or, or Africa? So the full route went Oakland, California, and I tried to recreate Amelia's flight from 1937 as closely as I could, but because of certain political changes and difficulties in the Middle East, I couldn't go exactly where she did. And I had a longer range on my aircraft. So they're sort of a shadow of one another in those routes, but it went Oakland, California to Denver, Colorado to Miami. From there, Trinidad and Tobago to Natal, Brazil. From Natal, Brazil to Dakar, Senegal, that was my first Atlantic crossing. And that was a wild one because there are no islands to land on, no alternates if anything goes wrong. And with a single engine airplane, that increases the intensity so much. <laughs> so from, from there, Dakar, Senegal into Sao Tome, which is this tiny little island off the west coast of Africa, into Tanzania, Seychelles, the Maldives, Singapore, Darwin, Australia, Papua New Guinea, and then from Papua New Guinea, I went to Tarawa, Christmas Island, Honolulu, and then back to Oakland once again. And during that South Pacific crossing after Papua New Guinea was where I was able to circle over Howland Island, where is where Amelia intended to land after she departed from Papua New Guinea. So that was a really special experience to be able to see where she wanted to make it to. Yeah. And what was that like? Because obviously that's that's where she's believed to have disappeared in that area. You know, I know there are a lot of uh, you would know it better than I would. You know, all the different theories of around her disappearance. You know, what was that experience like from a from a personal standpoint? From a personal standpoint, it was, it gives me the chills just thinking about it now, right? That's an, a part of the world that so few people ever get to see, let alone that island, because there's no runway there. Back in the 1930s, the US government built a runway specifically for Amelia and her navigator, Fred Noonan, to land on. But the storms out there are so intense now that it's gone, right? The runway is no longer there. And so I had something really special planned as I was up at 27,000 feet. The airspace is so dangerous out there and there's just no options to land. So you can't descend. So at 27,000 feet, my co-pilot Shane took the controls of the aircraft and I tweeted out the names of 10 young women between 16 and 18 years old who all learned on Twitter that they were receiving $7,500 scholarships to learn to fly. So that was really my attempt to say, look, I may be named after Amelia Earhart. I'm not related by the way, which we could talk about that if you want. But in that moment, I wanted to, instead of worry about being related to Amelia, relate to Amelia and inspire that next generation of women to get out and fly. And so that to me is a really special moment. That's great. And I love that too. I know my my nephew is is a, is a high school senior looking at flying and it is crazy expensive. Um, I guess just to, well, I want to come back to your story in a minute, but share a little bit about what you hope to pass on to the next generation through, you know, the foundation and the different things that you've set up. Well, it's neat because back in 1936, before Amelia departed on her flight, she was being interviewed by someone and they said, well, why are you doing all this? What's, why all the effort? And she said, 
I want to fly so that women of tomorrow can fly tomorrow's planes. And that to me was a really cool invitation to not do it the same way she did, right? Not, not try to do it in a historical context, but do it with all the access to safety and communication and technology that we have today. And so my hope was to do the same thing, to show women that aviation is an accessible career and it's not a dangerous career. It is, of course, dangerous if you don't take it seriously. But right now, only about 5% of professional pilots are women. But I can tell you this, that the plane doesn't know if it's being controlled by a man or a woman. It only knows if it's being controlled correctly. So this was an invitation for women to step into a really exciting career path or even just a hobby. But if you take it seriously and go all in with your full effort, it's, I don't know, I don't feel like I'm, you know, a woman flying an airplane up there. I just feel like a person doing what she loves. That's one of the things I really like about what we talk about is that is that going for the sense of adventure but doing it like I when I've got four kids I try to teach them to do dangerous things in a safe way and so when you are looking at adventure you also talk about flight plan like where does the adventure sense of adventure come from and then flight plan for after that where does my sense of adventure come from well my parents even though they gave me the name Amelia Earhart they're not into aviation but they're pretty adventurous in their own right I grew up around horses. I grew up outside riding dirt bikes and bicycles and just being outside in general. And there was a lot of emphasis on just staying active. And so transitioning and translating that into aviation in this really sophisticated way has been so much fun as a professional now, because while I'm not a commercial pilot day to day, right, I'm not flying a United jet, you know, to, to cart people around, but aviation for me has translated into this professional speaking world. So now I can show all this beautiful overlap and the similarities of what a flight plan can look like just from getting from point A to point B, taking into account all the turbulence, right? The different amounts of fuel that it takes to reach certain destinations. I think you see where I'm going here, but yeah. the analogies and the similarities between flying and what we do right here on the ground have been the most beautiful outcome of all of this. And what have you seen so far? So this has been in place for eight or eight or nine years now. Um, have you seen uh, some of these uh, young women go on to be pilots or at least develop their their uh, flying skills? Oh, yes, absolutely. In fact, the Fly with Amelia Foundation, which we gave out close to $100,000 in scholarships over the course of the first uh, year of the flight. And then beyond that, we were able to give annual scholarships after that. Um, and now we're donating the remaining of the proceeds to the Amelia Earhart Foundation in Atchison, Kansas, which gave me my first $10,000 investment to the foundation. So we're bringing it full circle and bringing it back to them. Um, but when I look at the impact of the foundation and, and the, the girls that have come out of it, they've kind of gone in all directions. But one of the girls I'm most proud of, her name is Camilla Bradley. She ended up becoming the captain of the flight team, which does precision flights and competition flights at Embry-Riddle University. And I know she's going to go so far because she's just got that confidence in her. And she was a young girl who grew up in foster care. But from a young age, she just knew, I want to captain an airplane. And she reached out to me and wrote an essay and we're still friends to this day. So I'm, I'm proud of all the girls. I love that. I love that. And what are some of the, the lessons that you've shared, you know, whether it's her or others on dealing with turbulence, obviously from her story, if she's coming from a foster care background, that that may be rougher than a lot of people have had. Um, you know, how do you how does I guess your your sort of step by step of how to deal with turbulence? Well, turbulence rarely crashes airplanes, right? It does remind us that we are in flight. 
Just like when you're driving your car and you're kind of just off in your own world and you hit a pothole, all of a sudden you're like looking for potholes, right? Turbulence, as you're cruising along up there, smooth in the sky, and then all of a sudden you're getting hit with bumps, all of a sudden you're going, wow, I need to be a lot more aware of my surroundings. And while turbulence isn't the cause of a crash per se, it can heighten your senses, heighten your awareness, and really give you clues into where you need to make small adjustments. Because as a pilot, if I'm going through a turbulent path or a turbulent um, airspace, I can ask for an altitude change and a simple couple thousand feet above or below, or a heading change of maybe something as subtle as five to 10 degrees of difference left or right can make all the difference in the world. And just like every airplane that we fly on, you know, if you're going through some big bumps, you ever look out and you see the wings really flex and you go, wow, how, how far can those things flex? <laughs> they can stretch so much further than we could ever imagine because every aircraft before it goes into circulation, will go through stress tests, right? They're going to stretch those wings as far as they can possibly go way beyond the uh, implications of an, of a storm that we would encounter. And I think the same is true for us, right? We can stretch so much further and experience far more bumps than we think, right? The minor, the most minor inconvenience can throw us off course on a day-to-day stretch. You go, oh, I wish that wouldn't have happened, right? I think of those things as minor turbulence, right? How do I just need to make the tiny adjustment to my course to find that smoother air? And then I find myself complaining a lot less and also seeking out better and more suitable air spaces and opportunities for myself. You know, how does goal setting, how do you actually build that out and make it practical um, from from the flight plan to to accomplished goal? So a flight plan is something that for, let's use my flight around the world as an example. I made that first flight plan, let's say the napkin sketch, maybe five years before I departed on my actual flight around the world. If I would have stuck to that original flight plan, given the circumstances I flew through in 2014, I never would have made it, right? So a flight plan is an idea, but if you don't adjust, you're not reacting and adjusting to the actual environment you're flying through. So if you look at my flight plan from afar, you see 14 straight lines, country to country, right? Point A to point B to point C. But if you were to zoom in closer, you would see thousands of course corrections along the journey. And I think that's not saying that you flight planned incorrectly. It's saying that you're correctly adapting and adjusting to what's actually going on, which makes you, I would say, a lot more realistic and a lot more, um, just focused on on the goal at hand rather than saying, oh, I want it to be as I planned years ago. Yeah. And that's that is one of those things, the adaptability. And and how has your message changed? You know, obviously the past two years have been different. I mean, all years are different, but these two especially. Um, you know, what is that sort of adaptive mentality? How has that translated to audiences that you talk to? It's changed quite a bit because I brought my survival gear compass here with me. I always carry it with me while I travel. This was actually something that I would I basically, you pin it on your shirt just in case you get lost at sea so that you always have a compass with you. Yes. I use this as an analogy of change because I would say prior to the pandemic, especially, I used to think that that true north concept was something that we all needed to find. We've got to know our true north, just like this compass is drawn to the magnetic pole of the center of the earth, which is why it always pulls in the same direction, right? That true north analogy is something in business, especially that we have been taught. We're supposed to know who we are and where we want to go. But now 
when everything gets taken away from you and you've got to reroute, I believe that using all 360 degrees on a compass, rather than just trying to find what feels right at the gut level is far more beneficial. And so it's allowed me to come up with this way of tackling challenges and finding creative solutions. And I call it 360 degree thinking. And with my companies like Berkshire Hathaway and Northrop Grumman, Capital One, I mean, I've been able to talk to these incredible teams now and they're coming back and saying, wow, we're actually using this. And turbulence is becoming a part of our language and conversation here at the office, because when we start to use all 360 degrees, we remember that we're not locked on train tracks, you know, even in a car on the ground, right? You've got to follow kind of a rigid set of paths. You can't just go your own way, but up there in the sky, this is an, this is, if you're looking around 360 degrees to find your next path, the options just keep multiplying, multiplying because beyond that, not only can you use all 360 of them, you can course correct and keep adjusting. So I've given up the idea of true north. In fact, my gut is often wrong, right? And I want to be more based on information and the the reality around me and say, yeah, it may be a little tougher on myself that I can't just go with my gut, but it's it's forced me into a lot more research and a lot more understanding of my actual environment. What was that that journey like? So uh, we're you know about Christmas Island. You're in the in the Pacific. You're heading to Honolulu. What's the what was the journey like from that point on and different from the first part? Like where had you grown over that that flight time and uh, and and how had you changed as you were heading home? You know, leading up to Howland Island, where the area in the, in the South Pacific where Amelia disappeared, I felt in a way that I was sort of chasing her. Right. I was following Amelia's path. I was really sticking to this idea of honoring her and being as similar to her as I, as I possibly could be in a lot of different ways. But right before I launched on my journey, I learned in a pretty um, abrupt and uncomfortable way that after believing I shared a distant common relation with Amelia for most of my life, the first 30 years of my life, I found out right before I launched that I was not in any way related to Amelia. And so a lot of people thought I wouldn't launch on this trip at all. And so that first half, I was still so in my head about, do I deserve to do this? Should I even be out here? Would Amelia even care if I was attempting to recreate her flight around the world? But something happened right over Howland Island where I gave away those scholarship dollars. There was a new freedom there. This was saying, you know what, Amelia, we're both pilots. Her spirit, join me on this plane. Let's finish this in a modern context. And I had this lightness about me. I was no longer Amelia Earhart, right? Trying to recreate Amelia's flight. I was Amelia Rose Earhart doing it her own way. But this was also this very high stress portion of the flight because really those 80% of my flight was over the open water. And even though I had a co-pilot next to me, that doesn't matter. That's that brain power there. And I, I'm so glad I took him along because while a lot of people give me a hard time about, oh, she didn't fly around the world solo. That's for some people, right? But for me, I knew that I wanted somebody there next to me to compare information with and really make those team-based decisions. And so as Shane and I came into how it came in towards Honolulu, we're making that final landing, getting ready for the stretch between Honolulu and Oakland, which would be the longest stretch of ocean that any plane anywhere on the planet can fly without having an option of a place to land. We just looked at each other like, wow, we flew around an entire planet. <laughs> so it gave me this sense of freedom. The plan, the original plan I set out for, you know, days, months, years before that had been thrown out the window and no one could challenge me any longer as to whether or not I did it correctly because I did it successfully. And I think there's such a lesson to be learned there. 
if we're trying to follow somebody else's path, we will always get it wrong because everything changes day to day. It's when we throw out the path and we go, wow, we're going to adjust and stay agile out in uncharted territory, which is what we're all in now. You can't get it wrong if you confidently and intelligently do it your own way. Thank you for joining us for the Beyond Speaking podcast. To learn more about today's guest, go to beyondspeak.com. Make sure to leave a review and subscribe wherever you listen.